This is an emergency podcast I've recorded with Brian Heal, the founder and editor of New Bloom magazine. Brian is reporting live from Hong Kong at the large-scale protests um, that have broken out in regards to opposition of the Hong Kong government's attempts to pass through an extradition law that would allow for Hong Kong citizens to be extradited to China and tried for crimes there. For many citizens, this is what they view as a last stand in terms of deciding the fate of if Hong Kong will be able to remain a unique entity unto itself with its own laws, political freedoms, and structures, or if it will eventually become consumed and essentially have no differentiation with any Chinese city in terms of its laws, its lack of freedoms, and its governmental structure. Uh, the stakes of this fight are quite large, as Hong Kong is one of the world's most connected cities, and should this law be passed, not only would Hong Kong citizens have to fear for their, judi uh, their judicial freedoms and rights, but perhaps any citizens doing business or traveling through Hong Kong would have those same fears. Brian and I talk about a number of issues in terms of what the situation on the ground is, how Hong Kong is being viewed by other Asian nations in regards to these protests, how the Hong Kong and Chinese government are trying to use certain themes of propaganda to discredit the protesters, as well as why the left globally should be focusing on Hong Kong. We hope you enjoy our chat, and if you like what we're doing here at Asia Art Tours, please do share this podcast, share our website, and consider us for your next visit to Asia. So I guess just for people who are uh, unaware what um, spurred these protests, and you can go back further if you need to, to the uh, Umbrella Revolution or wherever you think would be a good starting point to understand what's led to the events of the last uh, 72 uh, hours. So the issue that is currently being protested is an extradition law to China, um, which you know specifies that Hong Kong residents could potentially be deported to China to face criminal charges. Um, this didn't exist in the past. Hong Kong had kind of an unclear, you know, it didn't have extradition treaties with uh, many many countries, including China. And this issue was raised by a murder case that took place in Taiwan, in which a Hong Kong student killed another Hong Kong student, his, his girlfriend. But he couldn't be deported to Taiwan to face charges because is, Taiwan lacked an extradition treaty with Hong Kong. And so this became a means of, you know, pushing for this... Uh, uh, um, these legal changes, which it is feared that that would be further deteriorating of, of Hong Kong's political freedoms. I mean, to go way back, um, since Hong Kong was handed over to China in 1997, originally the claim was that uh, you would have one country, two systems, that Hong Kong would be unchanged for 50 years. Um, that did not happen. You saw the deterioration of political freedoms rapidly. And that is one of the events that sparked the umbrella movement in 2014. Um, what's actually interesting to me about that is that that took place two years after Xi Jinping took office in uh, you know, 2014. Whereas we have seen such a sharp turn, a downturn in, in political freedoms in China 
um, you know, for example, with the uh, mass detention of Uyghurs, that things are just so much worse than than they were during the umbrella movement, and yet that sparked a massive movement in Hong Kong. And so I think that actually, when you look at it, there's a host of issues that um, could have sparked a potential movement, but this became one of them. Um, you know, there's also the fact that that uh, student activists were being arrested and put in jail. The fact that uh, candidates were not being allowed to run for office because of the fact that um, they were pro-independence or that they would be removed from office once they were victorious because of the fact that they're critical of Beijing. Um, and so then this issue is the one that flared up. Um, the fear is that whereas there's already cases of Hong Kong citizens being deported from Hong Kong um, and appearing in China again and confessing to these kind of uh, lurid crimes, usually forced, it's, it's thought to be just forced extracted um, um, confessions, this extradition treaty could make it much easier for China just to punish Hong Kong citizens however it would like to. Um, for example, one of the fears raised is that even potentially if you just transit through Hong Kong International Airport, it's possible China could just drag you off the plane and send you to China if it views you as a criminal. And so this could be this could have wide ranging effects. Um, I think it's important to push back on what I would call propaganda that's being issued from Carrie Lam's uh, government at the moment about the violence of protesters and uh, even going so far as saying uh, the Orwellian notion that these protests signify just how much freedom Hong Kong has. So uh, can we just um, trace a little bit before we dive into the protests what activists have tried to do um, prior to these large-scale mass movements? What uh, have they tried to do through the normal uh, democratic channels of governance? And how has uh, Hong Kong's government and China uh, blocked uh, the possibilities for reforms or freedom to be implemented in Hong Kong through normal democratic channels? Mm. So, I mean, I think uh, what's interesting is that after the umbrella movement, you had the phenomenon of young people running for office. Um, I don't think this is as wide as the phenomenon as, for example, in Taiwan, but there's the notion of, uh, well, the term was like the umbrella soldiers. That's what they referred to candidates that ran for office um, after the umbrella movement. And you also had um, the formation of uh, political parties such as Demosisto, which originated out of scholarism, um, one of the student activist groups that was played a key role in the umbrella movement. But then the, the Hong Kong government, was not going to allow that. Um, there is the uh, requirement that you had to not be, for example, pro-independence or what the government viewed as pro-independence in order to be allowed to run to begin with. And that led to some disqualifications. Most notably, I think, the uh, the fact that Edward Young, a noted localist, was not allowed to run for office. Um, you also then have uh, the disqualification of, of legislators once they were elected to office. Um, this occurred with several localist legislators, uh, Bajio Young and Yao Ting. Um, and this also occurred with pan-democratic lawmakers and members of Demisisto, um, Nathan Law being the particular example. Um, and it was also just uh, shocking because Hong Kong has the political split within the legislature. There's the pan-democratic camp and there's the pro-Beijing camp. Um, but then even a veteran pan-democratic lawmaker has been around for such a long time, such as Longhair, um, that's his nickname, was removed from office. And that just shows that the, the, the legal system in Hong Kong, the uh, legislative system, the electoral system has become such that it is what Beijing's will wants it to be. And I think the judiciary is expected in many cases just to act as, as Beijing would do, uh, want it to do. And so it just seemed like the, uh, the, the means for this is, is for uh, blocking this law through the legislature were 
not possible. And I think that's what pushed people to direct forms of action. Um, I think just in general, pan-democratic politics in, in, in Hong Kong has reached such a deadlock that this requires a sort of new generation of youth activism, which we've seen in the umbrella movement and so forth, um, because of this inability to, to, to counteract Beijing, um, sometimes infighting, uh, the fact there are too many pan-democratic parties, for example. And yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the issue, and that, that's what's, what has pushed people to action, um, you know, to take actions into their own hands. And I think especially for um, liberal listeners who tend to think in, in frameworks of um, democratic government without uh, analyzing perhaps larger connections to power, um, in Hong Kong, what are some of the unique um, connections or controls that both China and um, the business community has over uh, government. So for people who might be liberal listeners listening to this thinking, well, this is what the government's doing and the people elect the government, what is important to know about the structures of Hong Kong's government specifically, as well as the direct links that Hong Kong business and China's government has to uh, Carrie Lam's administration to understand that these are illiberal reforms being enacted by her administration. Um, yeah, I mean, Carrie Lam is very technocratic and she's very uh, out of touch with the people. I mean, there's a famous incident that when she uh, resigned her original post to run for office, she was already a government official, a high-ranking one. Um, she didn't know where to buy toilet paper because she was living in an official government residence. And so after she resigned her post and left the uh, the building where she was really, you know, living, the official government residence she was provided, she didn't know where to buy toilet paper, and so she actually went back to the building after she left to get toilet paper. And that's, uh, I think that's kind of an illustrative anecdote of, of this uh, mentality of this government, which is technocratic and bureaucratic and uh, pro-business in the sense that I think a lot of pro-business interests align with Beijing, and is out of, it's completely disconnected from ordinary people. Um, Hong Kong has quite a unique government system in which actually uh, you have functional constituencies. These are uh, votes which are allowed to business interests. Uh, uh, they're, they're legislative representatives that represent business interests, um, sectors of, of business and so forth. And this is a kind of a very unique system of government, but also it is in that way technocratic and it's used for being pro-business. Um, I think also just in terms of, uh, you know, you do have this conflict between businesses that are more pro-local and those that are more pro-China. Um, it depends oftentimes on what kind of business. I mean, for example, the uh, the call for a general strike in Hong Kong that was supposed to take place yesterday, that actually did begin from, um, you know, local companies, uh, but in particular an app for uh, moving vans. And that is a sign of maybe how there's this kind of identity split. But I think just, again, like a lot of the, the way the government is set up, a lot of the, uh, you know, where the money is made is in China. Uh, you don't want to offend the, the Chinese Communist Party in that way. And so, yeah, that is kind of the, the things to skew towards China. Um, and I think that, you know, you do have the support from Bill from these kind of business interests. Um, I'd like to just uh, turn briefly to uh, the Umbrella Movement, and then we can do a comparison to the movement of today. So for listeners who are unaware, can you briefly elaborate on what spurred the original uh, series of protests around, I believe, 2014 of activists uh, and large swaths of Hong Kong society coming out to protest? What was the um, 
cause for mass action then and protests of that time? What would the composition look like? What actions were the protesters taking? What did they want? And um, to restate my original question, what brought them out in the first place? So I think that's the one of the interesting things that uh, if you compare now and then is that Occupy uh, Central was one of the key principal actors during the Umbrella Movement, um, you know, particularly in the months leading up to it. Um, the Umbrella Movement was about basically the same issues, I think, regarding Hong Kong's relation to China and the situation of, of Hong Kong's freedom. Um, however, uh, it was planned months in advance. I mean, there was, a, there was Occupy Central with Love and Peace, which is a project to kind of organize a uh, occupation of Central, which is a district in Hong Kong, and as a way to just show that the Hong Kong people did not want to just so quickly become just another Sun Chinese city, that there is these, again, according to the Hong Kong Basic Law, you do have provisions for Hong Kong to have a different political system than China for at least 50 years. Um, and this was planned for months in advance, and people expected it and so forth. Um, but just actually before the umbrella movement, um, people were starting to think that it might have been a failure and that, that it was not actually going to mobilize people. But between now and then, I think what is different is that that was actually planned months in advance, and there's an expectation that something would happen. Whereas with this, it's been uh, unstructured um, because just the fact is there's no key principal actor that people look to for um, what will happen. I mean, also during the umbrella movement, um, you had the kind of division between younger, more radical student activists such as Joshua Wong and scholarism, and kind of these older, more established. Uh, Kind of public figures such as uh, the Occupy Central Trio, and then during the movement they unexpectedly aligned. Whereas previously they had the younger people were, were more radical. They just kind of came together in this way. At the same time, there were still tensions between the two sides because again, uh, the younger people felt maybe the older uh, generation was much more conservative tactically, and that is oftentimes a split I think you see in movements in which you have young people working together with uh, much more established older people who have entered society and have jobs and uh, maybe are run NGOs or, or have organizations and things like that. Um, compared to this time, I think what is actually quite dis interesting is that it is also young people, again, that are taking the lead, but this is kind of a different set of young people than before. Um, the different uh, youth groups which were present in the past, such as local groups as Young Inspiration or Demisisto, which is what Scholarism eventually began, are also present in the new actions. But it is young people kind of taking the lead, and it's not necessarily the same set of young people. Um, it does seem very leaderless. It does seem very unstructured to me. And um, it is just kind of these groups gathering and sometimes not always having a clear aim because of that. Um, they're also much, some of them are much younger. Some of them have not actually participated in the umbrella movement. Um, they're actually too young to have done that. At the same time, there's also been this very clear uh, legacy of the umbrella movement in terms of kind of the tactical experience. And so, for example, the crowd is very fast to react when the police comes in this very well-practiced manner, um, knowing what to do to affect tear glass or uh, handing out um, umbrellas or, or goggles or ma uh, gas masks, or not gas masks, uh, surgical masks in order to prevent um, people from inhaling tear gas. And that, that, those responses are quite fast. And it's kind of interesting in the way there's this interplay. I mean, I think just the exact relation of these different forces will become more clear. And with the present kind of protests, if they do continue, you know, what is the, what are the, constitu what is the constituency of these young people currently? Uh, you know, who are the people that are kind of taking charge or becoming leader figures? I mean, I think no movement is ever truly leaderless. Um, I think that's kind of something that still remains to be seen. Well, it's, it, those are fascinating um, 
uh, parallels to the Gilles Jean movement in France. Um, that's what I was thinking as you were describing this sort of leaderless movement. Um, is it fair to say cross-class as well? Um, I think uh, it is a lot of the major action that I see are just pushed for by young people, and they look like students. Um, cross-class, I think it is. Um, you do see uh, you know, people that would say white-collar, you do see people that are blue-collar, and so forth. Um, it's harder for me to look around sometimes in the, the bigger action, um, for example, on uh, yesterday when they were firing tear gas, because there's, that's the largest thing that's happened since the March on Sunday. Um, but, you know, I didn't have too much time to look around and see what kind of people were there before the tear gas started firing. Um, on sure. Sunday, which I was, it was, it was one million people, though. And so that is uh, one out of seven residents of Hong Kong. And so that, you know, logically, that should be a very uh, broad swath society that is, many different classes and backgrounds and so forth. And just, you know, going through the city, I've just heard, heard a lot of random people just talking about it. And, you know, a lot of times being angry about the law, just even some old grandma at a convenience store or the clerks themselves and, you know, things like that. Sure. And if it's possible and if it's premature, um, of course, we we just tell me. But in, in terms of some of what I've heard, um, is it possible to draw any parallels to uh, the dissatisfaction uh, with Carrie Lam's sort of technocratic, neoliberal style of government. Are some of the concerns beyond uh, the extradition law related to Hong Kong's widening inequality, its inability for young people to find sustainable jobs, or have those critiques of neoliberalism that you see in other mass movements in Brazil and France um, not currently present amongst uh, the language or the conversation of the the protesters uh, that you've been able to tell? Um, so far, it's primarily been focused on the extradition law, but I think there are these general uh, issues at stake, and I think that's always a contributing factor to the kind of rise and outbreak of these kind of protests. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, Hong Kong is a tremendously unequal society. It is a place in which uh, young people don't have opportunities and sometimes have to go elsewhere or uh, fear for their political freedom and, and so have to go elsewhere. And that, that always lurks in the background. And I think that the, the reason why this issue in particular um, blew up so much is because it does touch on a host of other issues. And I think that always when you think about Hong Kong's relation to China, um, the question is Hong Kong just become another general Chinese city. Um, that's also lurking in the background, these kind of socioeconomic questions. And I think that also at the same time, um, then um, the role Hong Kong plays in, in the economy of China, which is... is on the rise, arguably. Um, that's also lurking in the background. I mean, if Hong Kong becomes just another Chinese city, what then? Um, and then what, what for a lot of Hong Kongers that live in, in a tremendously unequal society um, that is down just another part of the tremendously unequal entity that is China. And, uh, you know, even the thing that they have, which maybe parts of China don't have, is political freedom. And so what happens when even that are lost? And so I think that is, yeah, it definitely, it's a, it's a larger constellation of what drives people to Protests, and I think a single issue does always have to point out a host of other issues in order to really mobilize so many people and galvanize them to come out onto the streets. Um, turning to uh, what I would also consider propaganda uh, that's being issued, propaganda meaning false or misleading terminology or language designed to push uh, a narrative that's counter to fact. So something you are seeing now uh, being issued from Carrie Lam's government are claims that the protesters are violent, they're disorderly, 
um, trying to sort of evoke um, language often used by liberals or conservatives to sort of usher fear about mob behavior or the unruliness of the mob. Can you talk um, from what you've observed and what you've been able to discuss with other uh, observers of the protests as to both the conduct of the protesters as well as the conduct of the police? Um, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things I think it returns to that Hong Kong in many cases, a very conservative society, and it does oftentimes have conservative values, and this is what the government tries to appeal to when it claims that protesters are antisocial elements of their opposed society, or refers to them as rioters, or it just paints them as a bunch of kind of miscreants. Um, and that is the discourse that it tries to use to delegitimize de de the movement. I think actually sometimes the umbrella movement, uh, for example, in June 2014, acting as though it's so peaceable and uh, you know, people clean up after themselves and that everyone is polite and so forth. That is, that is too, a uh, almost strategy to appeal to the public because, you know, if you don't do that, then the public will actually think that you're just a bunch of riders and you're disrupting the public and why are you taking over public space, uh, why are you blocking traffic and that kind of thing. Um, and so there, you do have that in, um, that's an, I, think, I think that's an issue facing any social movement in, let's say, Hong Kong, uh, but also other contexts. And so you have that, but also then it's the police who are actually the ones who are extremely violent. I mean, the protest yesterday was peaceful, and the police attacked um, peaceful demonstrators. I mean, there's a video of just, for example, police surrounding a protester, one lone man, and just beating him. And it's not like he's provoking them or doing anything particularly dangerous. Um, there's no warnings from the police. The police escalated immediately by firing tear gas, and that was... Um, is much faster than usual. I mean, people even said, uh, there's one comment that it was just like umbrella movement compressed into 24 hours, this kind of escalation. And uh, you had tear gas being fired, water cans being fired, though I didn't see that myself, uh, rubber bullets being fired, um, pallet bags being fired, and uh, just beatings, batons, and that kind of thing. Um, so the police were, were quite brutal. And also just, uh, you know, the random stops and searches of, of uh, people that look like protesters in the subway or of journalists and the police would say things like, you know, like, don't think you're special because you're a journalist and that, that kind of is, is unusual. I mean, just uh, there's this kind of uh, aggression from the police towards the protesters where they very clearly view the protesters as enemies and not as fellow citizens of Hong Kong as, um, as protesters subsidized outreach to, to police in the past. And so um, that, that is, that is, that is, um, yeah, that's how the police have behaved towards protesters, and that that is out, that is uh, I think outraging of the public. Yet um, the the government still will say, well, it's the protesters that are actually the ones that are disrupting society, and it's their fault. Um, and uh, something has happened to you as a journalist that I find interesting. I'm not sure if you can piece together why exactly it's happened, but your Facebook account uh, has been blocked, meaning that you've had to do various workarounds to. Uh, update uh, individuals uh, while you're reporting from Hong Kong. Can you talk about this and if possible could you link it to any censorship that you're seeing within Hong Kong uh, either in traditional media channels of newspapers and uh, TV shows as well as uh, any censorship that's been reported or that you've observed on uh, social media or digital uh, platforms? Yeah, so uh, unusually my Facebook account was blocked from sharing posts from my my uh, my Facebook page or commenting on anything that I post. So I can't respond to comments. I can still post and so forth. Um, and But I can, just can't share from my Facebook page. And so what I was doing was I was uh, posting things on the Facebook page of, of the publication I'm part of, New Bloom, 
and then sharing them on my personal account because I do have uh, quite a lot of followers. Um, you know, Facebook is widely used in Taiwan, and it's used sometimes like Twitter. You follow people that share interesting things or, or personalize in the news and that kind of thing. Um, but then, because I was doing that too fast, apparently, I seem to have gotten caught in some algorithm and been prevented from sharing further and responding to comments. And I think I find that quite dangerous because of, you know, this kind of crisis situation. If I'm arrested, let's say I just post, you know, I'm arrested on Facebook, and then maybe, you know, uh, friends will kind of help me out because I'll see this or whatever. And, um, you know, or just I post something that I need a, I, I need a, uh, to figure out something. I can crowdsource knowledge. I can respond to people on Facebook, um, and that, that's worked for me in the past during crisis situations, and now I'm prevented from doing that. Um, I don't think it's deliberate censorship. I think I'm just caught up in some kind of algorithm. Um, it's happened to me before, usually in this kind of situation where I'm in a kind of crisis situation and I automatically got blocked from an algorithm. And so I think what that really goes to show is the danger of uh, over-reliance on these large, unaccountable platforms in which you can raise issues about being automatically blocked, but they're just not going to care or listen. Um, regarding censorship, uh, that is something we are actually seeing, which is quite interesting, is that the younger protesters, the ones that are, are uh, out there currently, they're very afraid of their image being taken. And that's, I think, a new development, because compared to the umbrella movement from 2014 until now, facial recognition technology has improved significantly. Um, you have, for example, the development of the social credit system in China. And this kind of a notion of being able to track your identity through photos and so forth. I know that was a concern in 2014, too. Um, however, it has become significantly much more of a concern. And while people could try to communicate through secure channels, for example, Telegram, with all these groups now with like just uh, thousands of people and just all these kind of crazy updates, and you're not sure always whether to believe them or not because a lot of them are crazy rumors. Um, there was an incident where a 22-year-old college student was arrested um, because he was running a Facebook, no, sorry, not Facebook, Telegram group to share information about the current protests. And so he was arrested just for sharing information, A, and B, now the police has a list of the people in this Telegram group because despite the fact that Telegram should be uh, secure through end-to-end -end encryption through low-tech means of just getting his phone in their hands, now they have a list of everyone in the group. And that's sort of a matter of concern. Um, I and some have accounted the fact that the current protesters out there who oftentimes are younger than uh, previous protesters are much more concerned is because they did see the kind of uh, the fate of older protest leaders during the umbrella movement. And so they're hoping to avoid that themselves. Uh, I want to just make sure we cover Taiwan. So just anecdotally, I've been talking to people in Taiwan, more sort of blue collar individuals I know where I live. And it's very, it's been very hard for them to find information on uh, Taiwanese media as to the protests. Uh, I, you know, had to tell people multiple times use Twitter or um, other outlets that I know, like yours, that are covering the protests. What does it say that on Taiwanese uh, TV and uh, through traditional newspapers that it's so hard for average citizens to find information about Hong Kong? Why would this be the case? And does this connect to anything related to uh, the 2020 elections in terms of how certain candidates have a more pro or friendly outlook to China? I think it definitely does. And I think it also has to do with the fact that there are quite a lot of business interests in Taiwan that are very pro-China. Um, I think that if you want to make money, China is where you go. And therefore, that causes capitalists to skew towards being pro-China. And who is it that owns television networks? Oftentimes, it is is capitalists, um, wealthy businessmen. It's almost a thing in Taiwan that if you are wealthy enough, you probably try to 
uh, create or buy up a media outlet as a prestige thing. And unfortunately, right now in Taiwan, the media landscape is dominated by pro-China uh, pro media outlets. And so you just have this kind of endless focus uh, on KMT political candidates, um, KMT being the pro-China party that is the former authoritarian party, and uh, just this kind of endless repetition of good news about them and bad news about the current government, which is more pro, leans in the direction of being pro-independent and is more uh, left-leaning. And you also have this kind of focus uh, in Taiwanese media culture on gossip and celebrity to begin with. And so it is actually very hard to get the Taiwanese public to be concerned with an issue such as this. And so it's actually one of those quite frightening things that something just takes across uh, very close to Taiwan, takes place in the, the Hong Kong, and people in Taiwan might not even hear about it because just the news is still just in this endless cycle about celebrities and uh, KMP candidates and so forth. And so, you know, we have all this concern about quote-unquote fake news these days. Well, uh, controlling plant, traditional media to begin with is actually also a very way of preventing stories from getting into the news or trying to just kind of make the public unaware of that or steer discourse in, in a different direction. I mean, that's maybe not outright misinformation, but it still uh, affects the news discourse. Um, and so that's actually quite frightening that this could happen and, and people aren't talking about it in Taiwan. Um, to bridge that, um, so specifically for the candidacies of uh, Ko Wenju and Han Guoyu, both have um, insisted that it is possible to work with China uh, to develop uh, pro-business policies that do not affect Taiwan's independence. What uh, that is currently happening in Hong Kong would uh, lead you perhaps to uh, issue a strong rebuttal to these claims? Well, I think that's interesting because China is still trying to hold out the offer of one country, two systems to um, Taiwan. And this is despite the failure of one country, two systems in Hong Kong. And it's interesting because one country, two systems originally originated as a model um, a formula, a political formula, to lure in Taiwan, but it ended up being applied to Hong Kong instead. And we can see now with the deterioration of political freedoms in Hong Kong before the 50-year deadline, that China would have no intention of adhering to promises not to change the political system for 50 years. Um, yet China still offers this to Taiwan nonetheless, as we saw in a speech in January by Chinese President Xi Jinping, in which he emphasized one country, two systems as a framework for unification. And I think that uh, members of the KMT, they traditionally will claim that, oh, at this point, they will claim that we're not uh, outright immediate in favor of immediate unification, but we can do business with China and we can preserve our political freedoms and things like that while aiming towards this broader goal of unification. And I think they, they know that the Taiwanese uh, voter electorate is very concerned with economic issues at present. And therefore, that's what they focus on, just the claim that can, they can benefit the economy uh, through building closer relations with China. And things like Hong Kong and whatever, it's just when you talk about politics too much. Um, there's the prevailing attitude in Taiwan that still that talking about politics is dangerous and that politics can be separated from other spheres of life and that as long as you keep your head down and don't talk about politics, you'll be okay. And so that's the claim about why Hong Kong, all these bad things happen because it's just what happens when you're too politicized. Um, it's this very you know authoritarian mindset, I think, linking uh, that, that lingers from the authoritarian period. Um, that if you keep your head down and just don't think about politics, then you'll be all right. Uh, just as a brief aside, I love your Facebook post of covering the Han Guoyu, uh, who's the candidate for people who don't know for the 2020 Taiwan uh, presidential uh, election, um, who is a, a dead ringer for Trump, where you say, uh, I've lived long enough. I'm paraphrasing, but you essentially say, I've lived long enough for the old to devour the young. And it certainly... <laughs> Um, seems to be the case that, as you've described in Hong Kong and in Taiwan, 
that these sort of economic considerations without worry as to the political consequences um, are uh, a message that resonates more with older uh, generations who have had uh, occasions to accumulate mass amounts of capital than the young who have not seen rewards uh, from neoliberal economics. Um, I just, I, I think your observations there are very sharp. Um, okay, so the last two questions I just wanted to ask you very quickly. Uh, I've been screaming on Twitter the past uh, 40 minutes, or the past two days really, to the U.S. left that they should try to publish more information about Hong Kong. Jacobin has been silent. Novara Media has been silent. The Intercept has been silent. Uh, we have a tweet today from Trump saying, oh, they'll work it out between Hong Kong and China. Um, for me, it's absolutely incredible that Hong Kong, out, out of basically thin air, is on the verge of uh, being able to construct a general strike between large classes of people from different class backgrounds, different societies and demographics. For you as an astute observer uh, of the left in Asia and the U.S., uh, why, uh, why should the U.S. left care about what's going on in Hong Kong? Um, I would actually just hope that the left in general is internationalist because, uh, you know, obviously what does occur in the West affects the rest of the world. The rest... Um, the world interlinked in important ways. And I think that just in general for the left, the left should be concerned with uh, workers around the world, for example, or just, uh, you know, progressive causes around the world. And I think particularly for Hong Kong, uh, China is always the elephant in the room in Asia. And so what happens to Hong Kong will affect China in turn. And it, this will affect a, a broad swath of Asia. And I think just how, how the political environment is in Asia is going forward. Um, for example, you do see this interconnection um, after Taiwanese, uh, after Taiwan legalized gay marriage, like there's talk in Japan of, of also legalizing gay marriage, for example, when this was kind of previously unheard of um, in many ways in Japanese political politics. Um, to that extent, I think there's a there's just kind of a, a lack of concern oftentimes with what happens in uh, Asia or other non-Western contexts for the American or Western left. I think there's pre uh, this kind of like a over-focus on specific countries usually, uh, or struggles within specific countries, usually ones that are Western or Anglophone and that kind of thing. And so I think just oftentimes these things that occur in Hong Kong, they're slow to register, or um, they only register in this kind of visual spectacle when you see these images of tear gas, for example, on the news suddenly. And Hong Kong is actually uh, quite internationally known, for example, compared to Taiwan. Um, you really saw that in 2014 with the difference between coverage between the umbrella movement and the sunflower movement. For example, Hong Kong has inadvertently benefited not only from British colonialism and that it's English speaking um, to a large degree and that there are a lot of forefront spawns here, but also from its proximity to China that the journalists that were kicked out of China oftentimes moved to Hong Kong next. And so there are actually a large number of journalists here, whereas Taiwan, it's farther away, uh, it's more marginal, it's not uh, recognized by the majority of the world's um, countries and it's not an international hub the same way Hong Kong is and so you see lacking coverage for example nationally of Taiwan but even when a place as international as Hong Kong uh, has something like this happen I still feel that the the left is is slow to react um, just maybe there's not enough information available or it is again like I mentioned this kind of predominant focus on Western context and this lack of attentiveness to uh, what happens elsewhere particularly in Asia and sometimes it is language barrier um, even times with news uh, sometimes there's a language barrier. Many, many times foreign correspondents working in Hong Kong or elsewhere maybe cannot read Chinese or maybe cannot speak Cantonese and that kind of thing. But in general, I think it's just this kind of uh, 
failure to be sufficiently international, despite the fact that the world is globalized. And so any left uh, needs to be concerned with global concerns and figure out how these things are all related to each other. Sure, I completely agree. And I think a good analogy would be that of sort of a a pandemic, a virus. Uh, when a virus enters a location that's extremely globalized, it makes it much easier to spread. And Hong Kong, with its international links to global capital and global institutions, uh, has an outsized importance because if it as we've discussed in this interview, uh, turns to a far more conservative and far more authoritarian style of governance, uh, those offer either signals or offer direct effects on global laws of governance. Um, would that uh, be a fair analogy uh, in your opinion, Brian? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think that's the, it is a question of, of what line you draw on sand um, for democratic freedoms in Asia. And for example, if you don't take any action or if you just assume that things will work out on its own, um, then China will be increasingly emboldened in order to to push for its, its, uh, what it claims to be its own system of governance that it should export to other places, the so-called Beijing model, in which you have a, a free market economy, but strong state controls and restrictions on personal freedom. Um, and that is the kind of scary thing. Sure. And um, in, in that regard, for uh, leftists who might still be rolling their eyes, China has uh, embarked in a worldwide uh, bevy of investments in Western infrastructure and uh, in Western countries. So uh, this is not as far-fetched as it uh, might seem. If it can happen to Hong Kong, uh, as you say, it will likely embolden the Chinese government to pursue these policies elsewhere. Brian, you've been wonderful. The last question I have is what should we be watching in the next 24 to 48 hours? What are the protesters trying to do and what are the chess moves being made by the uh, Hong Kong administration under Carrie Lam? That's a good question because I think it has been very structured this to date. I'm not even sure myself. Um, there was an attempt to kind of make an occupation yesterday, um, which I think was just in a lack of other means of protest actions. Um, it's very unclear what people want to do before the general strike happened. And the general strike also did happen, but it wasn't so wide reaching of society. It did not cause the Hong Kong side to ground to a halt. And then after that, then uh, what now remains to be seen because the, the demonstrators did withdraw at the end of the day to do other things. And so it's, it's kind of unclear. There's no clear action right now to be a focal point. But that could emerge rapidly. And also just uh, the government did delay the vote until next Thursday. And so in that one week, there is enough time for further plans of action to develop. And so I think I would keep an eye on the long term. Things might not happen actually right away within the next 24 to 40 hours. But in the next week, something will happen. Well, Brian, I'm going to be telling everyone to follow you on New Blue Magazine. I've uh, asked Doug Henwood to reach out. I believe he's sent you a message. Um, and I've asked a few other podcasts uh, to reach out to you because I think the work you're doing is extraordinary. I'll try to get this interview up today and uh, solidarity with Hong Kong. And thank you so much for your bravery in uh, reporting on the ground there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for getting in contact.